0: You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first time leaders, for that moment in your career when the buck stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. So, welcome to a new episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, James Nagel. And today, my guest is Connell Henry. But first of all, let me tell you about Connell. So Connell is founder and chair at Fibris, which won the contract to deliver broadband to Northern Ireland. Prior to this, Connell was CEO of Enet, taking it from a startup to a 200 million euro acquisition and winning the tender for the 2 billion Irish national broadband plan. Prior to Telco, Connell packed in quite a lot. He was commercial director at Ryanair Head of Finance for Non-Food and George Clothing at Asda. And his first job was at Procter & Gamble. So it's my pleasure to introduce Connell. Hi,
1: Jim. How are you?
0: Very good. I suppose for the benefit of the audience, maybe we should give full disclosure. So we went to the same school. Yes.
1: Uh, same school, the same university and the same first employer at a college. Isn't that right? went to absolutely. college Belfast, did a law degree at Queen's and then joined B&G. That's what you did, isn't it?
0: It's exactly the same. albeit I was one year behind you. Never caught up. So, look, I think I think it's going to be interesting because, despite all those similarities, there were we, we took different paths, right? I I basically stayed with one company and moved around around the world. And you were a bit more pr- promiscuous at the start. You moved lots of times.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fell down eventually, but yeah, you know, I did. I I was I moved around an awful lot. Uh, you know, from about. You know, year five of my postgraduate career till year fifteen, not middle ten years from maybe twenty six to thirty six, I moved around an awful lot.
0: And then, what's interesting, despite that sort of working with a lot of great corporates, you then chose to go out and 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 you you did that before startups were in fashion like they are today. You know, startups, there's a lot of supports out there. So, I suppose getting straight into it, you were a startup CEO in your mid thirties. You know, yeah. how easy did you adapt to that hot seat?
1: I I suppose the the first thing to admit was that I didn't really think about a CEO role being different from any previous role. I'd been sort of commercial directors and stuff like that. I had senior roles. So I was going from a a director role in a large company to a CEO role in a startup and a small company. So I almost felt like it was a step backwards in my career a little bit in terms of the sort of profile of it. And I hadn't really thought about what it was to be the leader. Um, and so I hadn't considered that. And it was probably naive of me at the time as being, and it is different. It's completely different when the lead, when all the arrows point to you, it's different. Uh, it's a much more lonely place. The, the access to coaching support and everything is, is different. Um, and then the, the other thing that I talk to other leaders about now is what you forget is when you're the leader, you know, with regard to everybody else in the organization, you can sometimes be seen as the walking pay rise. know that everybody else looks to you (laughs) you know so you you everybody treats you differently and you're breathing different air as a leader even if it's in a small or even if it's you know a corner shop if you're the guy running the place it's different from the guy who's the number two in the big thing you know that certainly was my experience
0: yeah i heard a good one a few days ago where they said you know you're the ceo when the only time that people pass by your office is when they want something
1: yeah. Yeah. And that's very, I mean, I, th- I think that's, you, you can feel like that and you can sort of whinge about that as the leader, but actually the people working in the organization, if you're leading it wrong, will treat you like that. So you've got to be more accessible, but it's not going to happen by accident. Like if you've got an accessible personality and you're not the leader, people will work with you more, but no matter what your personality is like and you're the leader, people will treat you differently. It's They just see you differently, not because of who you are, but because of what you are. And so you have to actively come around that. And, it, it, you know, and I, I I, only, you know, I've been the leader, the, the CEO now for, I'm a chairman since 2006. So what's that, 15 years? Yeah. And it took me quite a while to really properly get my head around that, you know,
0: If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to test your own readiness for the hot seat, then take the Leadership Readiness Scorecard. Details in the show notes and on swimnotsync.com. So maybe talking to getting your head around it, what were your sort of sink and swim moments?
1: Oh, listen, um, so in the early days, you, you realized that you know, it doesn't matter what it says on the slide deck. It doesn't matter what promises you've made to the board. Your success is going to be determined by what the business actually does. There's no presentation. There's no slide deck. There's nothing that's going to save your life if, if you don't go out there and make sales higher than costs. And there's a reality to that that, that you could everybody can understand in theory. But in practice, it comes very quickly. And you find out very quickly whether you're capable of taking that on board. So, you know, a lot of times if you're in a different management position, you're worried about what you said to you know, other, other, other people in the organization versus what, what you're saying now versus what you said the last time. When you're the leader, if it's not working, it's not working. You need to decide very quickly that it's not working. And it doesn't matter if you look stupid by changing your mind. You have to. And Enet, we had to develop our own business model. We were the first truly standalone wholesale telecoms company. And, you know, we had to work out ourselves what that was, what the actual business was, how we would actually make money. So that wasn't a big strategic conversation. It was more like, well, does doing that actually make money? It's really quite practical. We were lucky in that, you know, we, 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 we were writing our own business model. We were unlucky in that generally what you do, or what I would advise people to do in a position of leadership is to copy the guy who most like their organization who's doing it best and don't try and reinvent the wheel. You shouldn't be ashamed of copying people. There's so much to be copied out there. But in ENET, actually, we didn't have anyone to copy. So that was great. And if you talk about a swim, not sink moment, it was like, Craigie, we actually need a strategy here. And no Harvard MBA is going to get me this strategy. I've got to work out how to make money and deliver this business.
0: As I mentioned before, startups are much more common and much more attractive now so so many people who are in corporate and you know maybe the audience of this podcast are looking at yeah. people who have right and and you've sort of hinted at it a lot of corporate life is internal presentation and positioning but how different is it for you because in a way you had you had your bosses you had the investors and delivering against you know your business plan as well how different is it It's completely different because there's, well, sorry, it's not completely different. It's very different in that
1: you're not worried about getting found out by your boss or your board or your investor. You'll get found out in the P&L and in the cash flow because it's all your fault. You can't say, well, you know, group did this to me or... You know, finance wouldn't let me do that, or you know, another part of the organization prevented me from doing what I want. You are the organization; your decisions drive the organization, and the organization's performance is a function of the decisions you're making. And so, you you have to really get your head around that very quickly, not hide behind excuses, and actually work out what really works and what doesn't work, and what really makes money and what doesn't really make money. And it is different, and 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 people in corporate careers will say, "No, no, no, I'm I'm." doing the right thing by the shareholder and I'm always thinking about the business. Now that's true to a large extent, but we're also minding the boss and the guy who's given us a pay raise and all that there, you know, and it, you know, that's just the way the world works. You know, we all know that climbing the slippery pole in the corporate world is 50% performance and 50% the um, opinion you generate amongst those people whose opinion matters. And sometimes that's related to your
0: performance and sometimes not so much. Yeah. So when you think of those, you know, as you say, you've been a you've been a boss outside for fifteen years. O- over that time, which was maybe the most formative of your of your prior experiences, which ones did you draw on? Was it was it ASDA? Was it Png Or where did you tend to default back to and go, okay, I don't know how to do this, but so and so would have done it this way? It's funny. I, I
1: I I think the the deepest and most profound learning experience I had was in my two and a half years at ASDA, okay. Simply because it was it was so intense. Um so I was head of finance for non-food at ASDA and then went on to be commercial director of George Clothing. And in those roles, you're going to, particularly in the non-food role, you're going to meet meeting, one minute. You're going to meet on dog food. The next minute, you're going to meet on batteries. The next minute, you're going to meet on greetings cards, you know. And then, you know, I we we'd get we'd get to go to the Brits every year because we were also responsible for music and video. So, you know, I was the guy, and you just got a really deep insight very quickly into a lot of markets and the, the meetings you, were in, you were in were in were proper meetings about pricing decisions and listing decisions and strategy decisions. And you were in those meetings with the most senior guys from, you know, Mars or P&G or Unilever or EMI. So you were, you know, it really was a huge learning experience. So from a strategy point of view about, you know, what will work and what won't work, that was a re- huge learning experience. Um, my first telecoms experience was it was a company called Energis, and that was that was that taught me a lot about probably what's the most important lesson that I have as a leader, which is that no matter what else you do re- well, if you get your people decision making wrong, nothing else matters. You know, if you if you do everything wrong but get your people decision making right, you'll probably be successful. If you do everything right and get your people decision making wrong, you won't be. Su- it's it's unbelievable how important that is, and it was only really when I got to Energist, that I really started to really get that I'd been successful off the back of my own efforts and my own spreadsheets and my own presentations and my own personal horsepower up to that point. Then you get to a point where you have to be successful through others. You realize that if, if those other people aren't capable of delivering your success, you're, you're really in a tough place, you know? So, so I think that Energis um, and, and, Energist was run by the old chairman at Asda, Archie Norman. That's how I was in there. He had a very strong commitment to only bringing in the right people, you know, and he overvalued talent over experience. Uh, And that was a lesson that I've carried into Enet and onwards into fibrous, where we say, you know, in fibrous, we say we look for three things, commitment, ability and experience. And in that order. So, you know, you're looking for somebody, what I mean by commitment, somebody who really cares, who worries about the business, who wants the business to be successful, uh, ability, somebody who's got some horsepower, and then experience. It's great if they've done it before, but actually, if you bring in people with commitment and ability, the experience will find itself. So, as they taught me everything that there is to, to, to learn about strategy, mm-hmm. and real strategy in life strategy, Energist, I started learning about the, the importance, the real importance about bringing in the right people. And everything
0: in mind. So those are probably two of the most formative. In terms of your Joe spec, there's maybe a, just a different way of saying the same thing, which is, in my old company, it used to be, they looked for insecure overachievers.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 And a similar a the person I used to work with, and I, they shall remain nameless, said, I always look for a sales director with two ex-wives. Um <laughs> you know it's 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 and that's a sexist thing to say but it could be a sex husband's but 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 it's yeah i suppose there's that that needs that itch somebody who has an itch to scratch i'm not sure the way i'd phrase i think about myself is i have a very low boredom threshold so once i've done it once i'm not that interested in doing it again and so if I've done, you know, and and in Enet we were lucky because although I did twelve years there, it definitely wasn't the, you know, it, it wasn't the old, you know, you know the story about the guy in the bank who's twenty years experience. Well, actually, you no, know, he's one year experience twenty times. And in Enet, you know, those twelve years were twelve very different years. You know, very basic startup where you don't know whether you're going to make payroll to fifty million turnover, twenty million EBITDA, uh, significant presence in corporate Ireland, and um that journey so that journey was continually evolving all the time but i think my sort of restlessness comes from quite a low
0: boredom threshold as well which which is also something that's easy to interview for but i just want to go back to that because it was a long stretch and as you say from a from let's say a pure startup in limerick to sort of an MA and 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 mm-hmm. sell, sell it on the business and all that there's a, there's a lot of different experiences in there who and what are the type of people that you will lean on from from your past
1: I don't particularly try and rebuild my network in every company I go or, you know, bring all people with me. So there are some people who've who've worked with me in a couple of different places, but I don't, it's not something I look to do. And I definitely don't do friends and family. And my friends and family will know that. I have leaned quite a lot on specific individuals who, who know what I'm looking for in terms of recruitment, but I don't, Rehire my old network. Now, having said that, Thomas Grant, my CTO on ENet, is the CTO on Fibrous and you know it does happen, but it's not something I'm looking to do. Um, I'm more leaning on a type rather than individual people. You need to get to a situation where, you know, it's not that they've learned the strategy off by heart, but if you ask, if you go around if you went round the ENet Christmas party in any one of those twelve years and asked random people across the Christmas party, what the three or four most important things were to the company, you'd have got consistent answers all the time. You know, there was a consistency and you know, people understood what we were trying to do, how, how their role fitted into that and what the priorities were.
0: So if I sort of take a, a long-term view of your career, with the exception of P&G, you've always gone for the challenger. I mean, even if it was asked it was big, but it was a challenger. Yeah. It's a different mentality.
1: So oh, you were to you were at school with me. I was like that at school, you know. I was the cheeky boy putting it back up to the teacher as well. It's just, it's a more comfortable place to be for me.
0: Yeah, where where, where did the where did the cockiness come from? Because it certainly uh, in our old school it wasn't encouraged. <laughs> no, it definitely wasn't encouraged. No, it de- and it wasn't. I don't think the school particularly. You know, I I never
1: had a great relationship with the school. Um, I don't know actually. Uh, you know, um. It's it's just a personality trait. I, I I do like to put it up to the big lad, you know. So, you know, I suppose in Ryanair, we at that stage, we, you know, when I was in Ryanair, we we overtook Air Lingus, and that was a huge moment. And you know, um, you know, taking on Aircom, taking on BT, even at ASDA, when I joined ASDA, you'll remember this. They were in real trouble. They were only, you know, they they'd only just avoided a bankruptcy moment six months before I joined um so you know and they, they were putting it up to sainsbury's and tesco in a big way at the time so so it, it's just well there's an opportunity to do more the big there's an arrogance in the
0: big companies that it's fun it's fun to burst their bubble sometimes you know and given given that's your sort of your natural style and given where you've ended up but i'm just curious then why first job png and how did you enjoy that time I ended up in Procter Gamble entirely by accident.
1: And the first question they asked me was, so why do you want to work in the finance department in P&G? And I went, right, so it's a finance job I'm in for. Uh, <laughs> so um, and I had skills in that sort of bluffing and blag- blagging sort of, you know. And to be fair, I didn't blag my way through the interview. P&G at that stage were looking for people who had you know, as much as they're academics, they were looking for extracurriculars as well. And I had good extracurriculars, you know, you know, at, at Queen's. That's how I ended up. P&G was no great strategy, purely by accident. In terms of what I got from that, well, p is actually an extension of your academic development. I, I, I would tend to think of it more as an MBA on steroids. You know, it's more, it's very, you know, there's a, it's a very structured learning program. It's a very structured development program. You do a year in the factory and then you do a year in head office. You know, and there's all everybody, and and, and there's your year in P&G. PNG, so the guys I joined P&G with, I'm still friendly with. So it's very structured.
0: And it just shows in a way how naive we were. I think that's not the case anymore for, for kids coming through. Given that you've seen, let's say, the corporate side and the disruptor side, what do you advise your kids? That's assuming they do listen. But you know, what do you advise the twenty-two year olds now in terms of a path? So, so the first thing
1: I don't do. Remember, I told you earlier, I don't do. I actually don't give my kids any advice because I don't really know anybody who's had a hugely successful career off the advice they got from their parents. Okay, you know, it's just not where you. Parents give their children advice to make up for the mistakes they've made. You know, that's, a, I, that's not true about my parents, actually, because they would have probably, my own parents would have given me very little advice purposely as well to leave me find my own way. But what would I advise the 22-year-old? I think, I, I yeah, I mean, I think it's a very, very different place to be 22 than when, when I was 22. There's much, much more information, you know, around about what's available. You can research the things you're interested in more. You can develop a much better perspective on what the world looks like, you know. So that being the case, it's it's probably far more important that you know yourself because you know what the world's going to look like much better than than you or I would have done. But but you might know yourself. It's really important to really understand not just what you're good at and what you're bad at, but what makes you happy. And then try and, you know, because if, if you're doing something you're good at that's making you happy, you'll do well. And it took me a very, very long time to work out where i was happy and where i was unhappy and and you know to know myself if you like and and even today they don't really teach you about yourself they teach you about the company you're in and they teach you about the strategy you, you don't really nobody really helped you learn about yourself you know and, and really examining yourself you know why am i doing this what's in it you know what, what what's my motivation what do i want to be when i grow up
0: and you can ask that in your 20s 30s 40s or i'll oh. ask i'll ask it i'll ask it to you right now you know what is the motivator now
1: that's what it's always been. It's the, it's it's the, it's it's the project. You know, in, in Enet and in Fibre's, we talk about the project. And if you sit down and you write down what the project is, and you think, sure, wouldn't that be great, crack? That's it. That's your motivation for me, anyway. And and my business partner in in, in, in Fibris, Dominic is the same. Um, you know, it, it's it's sure wouldn't it be great. And if I go back in terms of people who, who see the world that way, or Michael at Ryanair, you know, just thought, sure, wouldn't it be great crack to build the world's biggest airline? And Michael, not about the money. Not, you know, it's just that, that sure, actually sure, wouldn't it be great. I, I love that feeling of having left some footprints of having done something that, you know, well, that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for what we did. That thing just wouldn't, you know, there are probably, you know, there, you know, there are now four, significant size telecoms companies in Ireland that, that just wouldn't be there if, if it wasn't for stuff that, you know, i I've been involved in, like in, in finding them, you know. And so there's 500 plus 600 jobs probably in those companies. And that's just, that, that that's a very satisfying feeling, much more satisfying
0: than, than looking at any bank balance. The legacy and having something visible and that, that you feel proud of, that, that that's great. So a question which I ask, you know, all my guests, for people taken over in the hot seat, which tends to be in the uh, you know mid thirties to mid forties range, what, what would you what would you advise them? It's all about those people decisions. It's it's about getting control of your
1: top team and bringing in and 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 spending an undue amount of time making sure you get that top team right. Be clear on what it is you need. And, and I suppose the big mistake we all make when picking a team is we tend to recruit in our own likeness. And actually, you should nearly do the opposite. You should be recruiting people who make up for your own weaknesses. You know, so I am not great in the detail, and and a lot of people who have worked with me will be laughing their head off now. Not great, Carl. You're terrible. So, so I need people around me who can, you know, cover off that some of those bases. Everything. If you get that team right, you everything else will everything else will work. And if you don't, it won't.
0: You're doing something similar now with. Fibrous in the north, as you did it with Enet in the south, right?
1: Yeah,
0: or is it easier now than it was 15 years ago to get top talent to choose the smaller startup companies versus the incumbents? What's your experience? I think, I, I think so. I think
1: I hope she's not listening. My old CFO in Enet, you know, she joined Enet from Dell in Limerick, and people said to her, You know, Jesus, you're mad leaving a big secure job in Dell to join a flaky little startup like. 10 years later, Enet's worth, you know, 100 million plus and Dell's closed. People need to realize their job security is not their employer. It's their CV. Okay. If you have a good CV, you'll always find work. And I do think that our millennial friends, you know, get that, you know, in their 20s and 30s today, have a much clearer idea of their own market value. I think people understand, first of all, their own value, but also the, the sort of transitory nature
0: of most employers. Excellent Connell, thanks a lot. That was really great. Great. Thank you. Cheers, Jeff.
1: You've been listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. Subscribe at swimnotsink.com forward slash podcast.